Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I am your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it's my great pleasure today to have Katie Kadu on the podcast. Um, Katie has um, uh, chosen a poem that I've long been fascinated by and curious about and confused by in, in, in many ways, but I but its beauty is um, is obvious to me, has always been obvious to me. So I'm very excited. Um, I was very excited when she made this choice. Um, the, the poem that Katie uh, wants to um, talk about today is The Garden uh, by the poet Andrew Marvell. Um, and um, and we'll, we'll talk more about who Marvell was and where this poem sort of fits into literary and poetic history maybe um, once we get started. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Katie. Um, she is the author of a book called Domestic Georgic, Labors of Preservation from Rabelais to Milton, which came out from the University of Chicago Press in 2021. And um, Katie Kadu is currently a fellow at the International Network for Comparative Humanities at Notre Dame and Princeton. Um, she has written academic essays on the poet that we're talking about today, Andrew Marvell, um, also Michel de Montaigne and um, the topics of misogyny and cliche in Renaissance lyric poetry. Um, and her writing has also appeared in venues like um, N Plus One and Gawker and the Los Angeles Review of Books and the Chronicle of Higher Education. In fact, um, I just read and um, admired and was both uh, entertained and dismayed by um, Kitty's um, recent piece in the Chronicle, um, where she visited the um, English Institute, which is a kind of venerable annual gathering of literary scholars. Um, Kitty wrote about what has happened to the idea of academic stars um, in the present and what that has to do with the um, hollowing out of academic institutions in particular um, in literary studies, um, the, um, the hollowing out of, of tenure lines and so forth, and the, um, the scourge of precarity. Um, in, in the Los Angeles Review of Books, um, I, I remember admiring as a, I think um, Katie and I are both um, hail from Los Angeles, and I remember admiring her essay on the, um, the death of Eve Babbitts, or an, an essay occasioned by that event. Um, and her, her, I also want to recommend, and I'll put links to all of this stuff in the um, episode notes um, and the newsletter that goes out with the episode. Um, Katie uh, wrote um, a terrific piece on uh, in N plus one on Milton and uh, Twitter, the hell site as people call it, right? And uh, Milton's idea of hell. Um, and I just have to say, Katie makes Twitter a, um, a not hellish place to be for me. Still, she's one of the most um, delightful, erudite but also just extremely witty and funny. She makes me laugh on a kind of daily basis with um, her tweets. I cannot match them at all in wit. I'm a, I'm a Twitter uh, addict myself, um, but hopelessly earnest compared to um, Katie's disarming um, wit and um, intelligence in that space. So she's really mastered that form. I encourage you to follow Katie if you haven't done so already. And I'll, um, I'll put a link to her Twitter profile in the episode notes too. Um, so I'm I'm very excited to have Katie Kadu on the on the on the podcast. Um, Marvell and the Garden is just the kind of poem that I hoped um, we would be featuring when I started this uh, crazy enterprise, and I'm very glad to see it um, coming to fruition, which is maybe a bad pun um, today. And um, well, with that, I just want to say welcome, Katie, and how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's really my pleasure. It um, it genuinely is. Um, so, Katie, I I thought that the um the first thing we could do is to um hear you read the poem out loud, um and um you know again the, I would say to our listeners if um if you're interested and maybe in particular if this isn't a poem you've read before I might recommend that you. Uh, take a look at the episode notes and click on the link 
that I've provided there so that you can be looking at a text as Katie reads. Um, but uh, yeah, Katie, why don't you why don't you share the poem with us? Okay. How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays, and their uncessant labors see, crowned from some single herb or tree, whose short and narrow virgid shade does prudently their toils upbraid, while all flowers and all trees do close to weave the garlands of repose. Fair quiet have I found thee here, and innocence thy sister dear, Mistaken long, I sought you then in busy companies of men. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. Society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. No white nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. Fond lovers, cruel as their flame, cut in these trees their mistress name. Little, alas, they know or heed how far these beauties hers exceed. Fair trees, where'er your barks I wound, no name shall but your own be found. When we have run our passion's heat, love hither makes his best retreat. The gods that mortal beauty chase, still in a tree did end their race. Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow. And Pan did after Syrinx speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. What wondrous life is this I lead? Ripe apples drop about my head. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. The nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach. Stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers, I fall on grass. Meanwhile, the mind from pleasures less withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find, Yet it creates, transcending these, far other worlds and other seas, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Here at the fountain's sliding foot, or at some fruit tree's mossy root, casting the body's vest aside, my soul into the boughs does glide. There, like a bird, it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings. And till prepared for longer flight, waves in its plumes the various light. Such was that happy garden state, while man there walked without a mate. After a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be meet? But t'was beyond a mortal share to wander solitary there. Two paradises tore in one to live in paradise alone. How well the skillful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial knew where from above the milder sun does through a fake fragrant zodiac run. And as it works, the industrious bee computes its time as well as we. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? Thank you so much, Katie. Um, so this, um, this poem is maybe a, a slightly longer poem than... Um, we tend to feature um, here on the podcast. And um, I, I guess it might be useful to hear, um, you know, having listened to you read the poem, it might be useful to hear just a word or two from you about um, how we should think of the poem sort of standing back from it. So what would you say um, to describe the kind of poem this is? And maybe thinking of people who aren't, um, who've never studied Marvell in school or, or don't remember um, or know much about him. Um, what, what sorts of um, context could you provide, Katie, to begin? Well, this will sound a bit obvious, I guess, but it's really in the category of garden poems, I would say. Poems about guys, usually guys who want to get away from it all, all the hustle and bustle of the world and retreat to a space preserved from commerce and from busyness, the busy companies of men, as Marvell says. And so it's, it's related to the genre of, of pastoral, this praise of idleness, hanging out in the meadows rather than doing business in the city, and to philosophical traditions like Stoicism and Epicureanism, where the garden was this place where philosophical contemplation could happen. So there are 
a lot of other poems by Marvell that are also set in nature that involve a lot of work. Like he has a whole series of poems featuring a mower who's working really hard out in the fields. He's not just relaxing. But this is a poem about someone who it appears is just hanging out and not doing anything mm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess um, the idea of poems that are set in nature or poems that are about nature or about a kind of love of nature or desire to to be in the natural world are um, things that people will typically associate with poetry. I don't know. Um, fair assumption to make, I guess. It's one, one of poetry's great subjects. Um, but I guess it occurs to me that a garden is not quite nature, right? Um, or it's a, mm-hmm. it's a kind of um, cultivated nature, and um, uh, is is um, and I and I assume um, that the garden poem, as as you describe it, as a kind of subgenre or something of, of poetry, must be particularly interested in that, or t- would tend to be sort of interested in that interplay between. Um, letting nature go, um, a kind of non-human world, and human intervention in a in a natural world. Um, mm-hmm. Is is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, in a way, the the garden is a kind of metaphor for nature poetry itself—the coming together of art and nature in one oh, that's in lovely. one site. Yeah, and what's what's funny about this poem is that Marvell admits, or his speaker admits of no actual human labor. It's almost like the plants, if anyone's working, it seems it would be the plants who are upbraiding and weaving right. and the fruits that are coming right at his mouth. There's there's no indication other than carving the names of the trees in the trees themselves that humans right. are really impacting this environment. Right. And, but I don't want to pass over something you said almost as a throwaway at the beginning of, of that comment, which is such a brilliant thought that the um, the garden as a metaphor for the nature poem. So I just want to make sure I have that. Well, first of all, that I've quoted you right, um, but but also that I understand the idea right, that the, um, the idea is that um, a garden is a kind of um, human intervention in a world that's non-human, and it's a way to sort of give it form, tidy it up, Presumably, so that other humans can um, enjoy it, look at it, um, recreate in it, rest in it, whatever, but feel at home in it. And so, the idea would be what that um, nature poetry does this all the time, whether it's about gardens or forests or mountains or the sea, for that matter. That um, because, in other words, there you have a poet sort of cultivating a non-human world, but in literary terms. Is, 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 that, is that the idea? Um. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's, what's funny about, about this garden poem is that, as you were saying, nature poetry is about weaving art and nature together for other people, for other people's enjoyment. Right. But part of the shtick of the speaker is that there's no one else there. Yeah. <laughs> so in a way, it, it's, it is both... A, a perfect garden poem in some ways, but also an anti-poem poem more generally right. because it's it, it's really not for anyone, or so it claims. It, it's um it's a it's a garden, but not a garden party, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's it's garden um, party of one. Right. That's right. Okay. That's, that's lovely. Um, so, okay. So that's useful in thinking about um, the kind of genre of the form, but again, and, you know, obviously I've, I've suggested that people take a look at it, but, um, I understand that, you know, people are driving or if you're driving, don't look at it. Um, so for people who don't, um, have a visual in front of them, is it useful, Katie, to think about like the way the poem is organized? I mean, some of it, obviously, I think we could probably hear in your reading. So for one thing, just to get a a further obvious point out of the way, it's a poem that rhymes. Um, It's a poem that's in what I, um, iambic tetrameter. um, Mm -hmm. Have I got that right? And Mm -hmm. um, what little I know of Marvell, that's like a, um, one of his favored meters, right? Um, A a kind of a natural one for him. So um, for people who are novice to this kind of thing, tetrameter just means four beats in a line rather than perhaps the more well-known pentameter, which is five beats in a line. 
And I don't know that this is just a thing I have thought or was taught at some point that tetrameter can tend to sound more kind of conversational than pentameter. Um, though maybe rhyming couplets isn't quite. But what, so what else can we say about um, the way the poem is kind of organized on the page formally? What seems interesting to you about that? If anything, how does that fit into the poetic kind of context in which Marvell was writing? So it's it's nine stanzas, right? Of um, and it is, it is in these tetrameter couplets, and it, they're all the stanzas are eight lines. So there's a kind of like little squares, which adds to the sense of mm. of a human order being imposed on on nature. These little eight by eight <laughs> grids that we see on the page, and the couplets, I think, make the poem and the tetrameter make the poem feel really easy. There's something like you're really slipping into a different shade of, of consciousness when you're reading mm-hmm. this poem that with the poet you're annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade yeah and i think that's a deceptive ease but i think that right. that is always my first impression when i read it when i haven't read it for a while and i think it's many people's first impression that you're being lulled into this really chill mm. carefree spa day out in the garden by right. yourself not a care in the world Right. So there's nothing, at least, um, and I want to come back to the, you're calling it deceptive, which, you know, pricks my antenna up a bit, like uh, one, one, oh, deceptive how, but um, uh, right when, if, if you're um, reading this poem, you don't, and yes, it's a poem about the natural world, but it's not a poem in which you think some predator lurks just out of sight, or um, the weather is going to be inhospitable. Um, it feels like a world that you can sink into and float away in um, spa day sounds right to me. So what's deceptive about its ease um, or is that getting ahead of ourselves? I think for one thing, there is a lot of work going on. As I mentioned, Mm. the plants themselves seem to be working in the first stanza. Do you want to remind us of those lines? Sure. Um, Maybe I'll just read the whole first stanza again. Sure. Yeah. How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays, and their uncessant labors see, crowned from some single herb or tree, whose short and narrow virgid shade does prudently their toils upbraid, while all flowers and all trees do close to weave the garlands of repose. So he's rebuking people who are seeking military, civic, and poetic honors, going back to the the idea of this being a kind of anti-poetic poem in a way. So the military, civic, and poetic would be the palm, the oak, or bays, yeah? Exactly. Got it. And saying, instead of, or you're out there striving for these honors, which are symbolized by these botanical crowns. Meanwhile, look at these trees, the actual palm tree, oak tree, and bay tree. They're outstripping you in honor just by sitting there. Mm. But if you look at the lines, right, to say that these trees upbraid the toils of men, you're also given an image of trees actually braiding themselves or vines or branches braiding Mm. Mm -hmm. and weaving the garlands of repose. That's kind of a metaphor, but you also get this image of plants doing the almost the poetic work of weaving a text together um yeah that's lovely and so um um i i i think we'll we'll have more to say about the work that rhyme is doing um Mm -hmm. in in the poem as we go along and i in the and there are some moments of rhyme that really um i'm curious about here um but i guess fair to say that rhyme is its own kind of um weaving together or um that that maybe once you start doing it it feels natural um and effortless but of course it's not right it's not, it's profoundly unnatural right right and i think that the the weaving work of rhyme is related to the work that these puns are doing upbraid mm. weave um can, amaze can you- for, sorry, upbraid might be just unfamiliar enough a word for people to, for it to be useful for you to clarify what you mean by calling it a pun. Can you spell that out? Yeah, so it means uh, to chastise, to reprove. These plants right. are kind of shaking their fingers at these men for being so silly as to seek 
laurel crowns instead of laurel trees. Um, but it also just means to to weave into a wreath. Right, right, right. Um, okay, perfect. So, um, and then and then moving into the second stanza, it um, it occurs to me. I think there we really do get this, like what I have written in the the margin of the version of this poem I printed out so that I could have it handy for this conversation is like, God, this is profoundly antisocial. Like it's, <laughs> um, and I don't know if maybe this poem feels more resonant um, in a time of, um, you know, social distancing and sort of pandemic living or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, is that, um, I don't know. What, what do you make of its, of its, of this initial kind of um so i'm thinking of lines like um mistaken long i sought you then in busy companies of men your sacred plants of here below only among the plants will grow society is all but rude to this delicious solitude um this sounds like a person who doesn't want to go out you know who's who won't answer his friends phone calls and texts right um can you um, contextualize or say something more about what what is going on for you in the kind of antisocial tendencies that begin to emerge there in the second stanza? Yeah, I think the poem as a whole is is deeply antisocial in ways that are somewhat sympathetic. I mean, he is worn out by the the daily grind of, of having to work out in the world. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't feel that right. way? Who <laughs> right. wouldn't rather just at least have some time to relax and, and retreat. Well, but... I really love my colleagues and my students, so I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I get it. Right. Yes. It's nice to, to retreat. Exactly. Okay. Um, and Marvell himself was a very public figure. He worked as a Latin secretary under Cromwell. He was a member of parliament. He had a very active public life. So this doesn't really describe his mm. his lifestyle as, as the kind of poet who was just a hermit always by himself. So I, 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 think, I think the poem really is a joke on some level oh. and that the antisociality is is meant to sound extreme and absurd, even as it's also appealing in part. Um, a joke because he would trust his readers, you know, um, to, to know that he was um, articulating a position here that was not the way he lived or um, in that sense, <laughs> right? That he sort of... Um, t- sort of um, making uh, a sort of exaggerating a kind of hyperbolic version of a, of a wish that anybody might feel. Right. And acknowledging that that this is not a, um, that this wouldn't be a a value that people had to want to leave the world completely in quite such a extravagant way. Yeah. I mean, I guess as it goes on, the, the wish, the, the wish for solitude feels more and more extreme and um, sort of perverse and maybe less. Um, uh, maybe we can talk about some of the ways in which it feels. Um, it's anti-sociality feels not charming, but um, offensive or worrisome. <laughs> um, uh, it, but it also occurs to me, Kitty, that um, we've, um, we've, um, moved right into the poem um, without saying much of anything at all about Marvell um, and where he fits into um, history or dates or anything like that. So, um, sort of relative to to big major um, figures, not that Marvell isn't himself, but like where where does um, where does he fit in um, to literary history or to English history? Um, um, could you give us just a quick like thumbnail sketch of like dates and that sort of thing? Yeah, so he was a contemporary of of John Milton, and they were friends. Milton got him a job, and then he saved Milton's life and made Paradise Lost possible after the Restoration. Um, so he was writing during a very living and working as a public figure during a really tumultuous time in English history during the English Civil War and the execution of Charles I. Mm-hmm. And then the interregnum, and then the restoration. So he, How did he saved Milton's life. 
Milton was imprisoned for his yeah. support of the regicide. He wrote many tracts defending the English people for executing their king. And Marvell pulled some strings and got him out of prison. So and like what, a profoundly well-connected man. Yeah. Yeah, he was really good at molding himself to the political climate. So he was initially a royalist in the, mm. I don't know when, the early 1640s. And then he sure. switched sides to be a parliamentarian on the other side of the Civil War. And then conveniently switched back with the restoration of the monarchy to be on the royalist side again. So, so, he was, so not not like burdened by firm ideological commitments, <laughs> let's say. You could say that. You could say okay, that. Okay, right. I, we know the type, I guess. Um, I, mean, I don't <laughs> want to reduce him to a type. Okay, so that's useful. Um, so contemporary of Milton's. Um, um, I, we were talking just before we started recording that um, I, I was looking again today at, at Milton's great poem, epic poem, Paradise Lost, which maybe we come back to towards the end of this episode, but um, noticing or sort of reminding myself again that that before that poem begins in my edition, there's a kind of prefatory poem by Marvell. So um, these are two figures who are quite closely related, not just in friendship or life, but also in literary history. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so, um, so that context might help us understand um, some of the ways in which um, the poem is a surprising kind of text for this poet to have written. And maybe one other thing um, I can say is that, um, or ask you about, um, you know, I, I, I think that probably the, the poem by Marvell that, that most people would know if they know one poem of his at all, um, is the poem to his coy mistress, which actually um, came up in um, the episode that we just had with um, Lindsay Turner on the shampoo, where we talked about the idea of a carpe diem poem. And that feels like one of the classics in that genre. So it, it just struck me in rereading the garden, sort of preparing for it, this poem that's kind of pining for solitude um, seems so antithetical to the kind of attitude of the poem of, of seduction. Right. Um so um, is that also a kind of, I mean, I know in, a moment ago you were talking about the um, kind of political um, uh, contradictory um, tendencies in Marvell's history, but um, does this point to another kind of um, contradictory set of impulses? Um, seduction on the one hand, a desire for solitude on the other. Yeah, this is an anti-carpe diem poem in a, in a different way than The Shampoo by Bishop uh-huh. Fizz, yeah. um, in the sense that in To His Coy Mistress, the problem is that there's not world enough or time, as the first line goes. And in the garden, there's all the world and time that you could possibly want. And there's mm-hmm. also no women, which is the right. whole point of a carpe diem poem, is that you have the woman who's right there in front of you, and you're trying to seduce her before she gets old, which will be any minute now. <laughs> so with, without that that threat of, of the woman's sexual viability disappearing, there's no time pressure. Part of what makes this poem feel expansive and relaxed is that there are no women who are making sexual or other demands on the male speaker. Right. So does that also, because that's so um, interesting that you put it that way, because the next... I mean, obviously, I want to come back to the topic um, because I know it's one that you're um, um, very interested in and that is clearly at issue here in the poem and that we need to say something about that, that namely the topic of misogyny um, or the sort of poem's attitude towards women. Um, But uh, what I was going to ask you about in a way sort of leading up to that was um, these are this is the opening couplet of the third stanza of the poem. No white nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. Um, If you had asked me um, a month ago or whatever, before you and I ever planned this episode and before I had started kind of here and there rereading this poem in preparation for this event, like, um, oh, Kamran, um, the Garden by Marvell. What do, you know? What do you remember about that poem? And you know, put it in a word. The word would have been green. Like um, it's just it's a poem that like you close your eyes and you, or if, 
if you are me, you close your eyes and you see green. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I find in general the business of like, oh, well, color X symbolizes this abstract idea always and forever in poems and color Y, this other one. But here it does seem like green must have some sort of set of associated meanings with them. And it, and um, my launching into this um, question was prompted by your um, description of the anti-Carpe Diem poem as one in, you know, like in the Carpe Diem poem, the woman is about to get old. She's like ever on the precipice of that. Whereas this seems to be a poem in which things are green, which might mean young and um, will be evergreen. You know, um, like there's no danger of autumn coming here, it seems. Um, but I don't normally think of green as an amorous color, you know. It, um, so uh, that seems like a kind of a perversity of the poem. So, yeah, I don't know, Katie, what do you what do you make of the the, the function of the color green in this poem? Yeah, it's funny that you that you mentioned evergreen because we just talk about the Apollo Daphne couplet, but Daphne turns into a laurel, which is evergreen, and she becomes a symbol in Petrarch's poetic sequence of his everlasting love for for Laura, Laura, Laurel, Mm. um, but also for the immortality of of his poetry. But green, as as you're saying, is not a particularly erotic color. And in fact, in the Renaissance, if you thought about green and erotics, you'd probably think about green sickness. Mm. which is the the disease that virgins had. <laughs> um, mm. So the the cure for a green sick girl was was to have sex because there was something mm. something about her greenness that suggested a a repressed sexuality, something wrong with her sexuality. So it's not in the same register as white or red which would be the lilies that a woman's hands are compared to or the red that her, the roses at her cheeks are compared to. It's, it's in a different, different palette than that altogether. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds, uh, I, I confess I had never heard of the green sickness um, before. So it sounds like, uh, well, an, um, God, uh, like an, an awfully um, convenient um diagnosis for men to provide but um but also um a weird kind of mixing of a pathological kind of reading with um uh uh uh, i don't know this um the the implication of a kind of readiness or ripeness or um, sexual arousal or something like that. It's, it's a, it's a perverse, um, I keep using that word with the spoon, but it's, there's something um, really odd about bringing those two things together. I mean, uh, I guess for us, if you say, you know, someone's turning green, you know, that it brings up ideas of like nausea and um, Mm -hmm. sort of illness that, feel profoundly unsexy you know um but there's something else there's a different kind of historical context here is what i'm hearing from you yeah yeah it's it's basically like a more colorful version of hysteria right okay well say more about that what do you mean more colorful uh, version of hysteria you know just just you know know, like the the freudian sense that the the hysteric that that the hysteric is um is expressing these symptoms because of some kind of sexual repression. Right, right, right. Um, if I don't know if the audio just got picked up over here, but I, I think when I started asking questions about um, signs and symptoms, my um, like the um, the voice assistant on my phone turned on and started to offer helpful, <laughs> helpful diagnostic tips. Um, and I don't know what it said, but, um, well, anyway, if you, if, if you heard that dear listeners, that's what that was. Um, oh, okay. Um, so, um, you, so uh, towards the middle of the poem, we get this, um, um, catalog of, um, mythological, um, uh, 
figures that you alluded to a moment ago, Apollo and Daphne, um, Pan and Syrinx. Um, I suppose this might lead us into a discussion of some of the gendered politics in this poem. Um, Kitty, what strikes you about those moments in the poem or what can we learn from knowing a little bit more about the um, mythological allusions um, in the, in that stanza? Yeah, I think that these couplets are the most perverse, to use your word, part of yeah. the poem. Maybe I'll just read them sure. aloud. Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow. And Pan did after Syrinx speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. So the most canonical version of the stories of Daphne and Syrinx are in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And basically the story of Apollo and Daphne is that Apollo... The god falls in love with this nymph, Daphne. She wants nothing to do with him. He pursues her. She runs away. He keeps pursuing her. She calls out begging her father, who's a river god, to kill her or do something because she would rather die than sleep with this guy. And her father Mm -hmm. decides to turn her into a laurel tree. And Apollo catches up with her right as she's metamorphosing into a laurel tree. And he's not immediately turned off, actually. He keeps trying to embrace her as she turns into a tree, but eventually gives up and decides that since he can't have Daphne sexually, he will have the laurel as a symbol of his poetic prowess. So he takes some leaves off of the laurel tree and he laureates, he crowns himself as the first poet laureate. And this is a kind of foundational myth for lyric poetry that because we can't always have what we want, we can't have the true object of our desire, lyric is a consolation for that loss. Which if is, you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, right. Exactly. Okay. So, so lyric is like a sublimated version of erotic <laughs> desire that's unconsummated, um, and and that and that and 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 among the consequences of that is the is the objectification. I mean, in a literal sense, of the desired after woman um, right. who goes from being a live woman into a thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so say more, yeah, please. Um, and this, the Syrinx myth is, is much shorter in Ovid, but similar situation with Pan mm-hmm. and God Pan, another nymph, Syrinx. He chases her into a, a lake and she turns into a reed and he hears the wind blowing through the reeds and thinks, mm-hmm. aha, what a great mm-hmm. pipe this would be. And he invents a musical instrument. So again, it's a, a consolation for loss that gives birth to a form of art. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so what is knowing or sort of keeping those mythologies in mind, what sort of use, if that's even the right way to describe it, is Marvell putting them to here? Well, part of what's interesting, especially in the Daphne couplet, is this is like a hundred lines in Ovid. It's a pretty long and involved mm. story. And Marvell really radically compresses it into this little couplet. Mm-hmm. And it also, it, it compresses temporality in a way. So, so what he's saying is that Apollo didn't seek Daphne and as a consolation for his inability to rape her, for his loss of Daphne, he gets to have the laurel and he gets to have poetry. He's saying that he hunted Daphne so that she would turn into a laurel tree. That's what he wanted all along. That wasn't a consolation. That was the goal right. in the first place yeah which is just, it's just literally femicidal right he's right instead of just there, there are plenty of plants around there are lots of plants that he could use to make a little crown out of for himself if he wants right but he wants to kill her he wants her to no longer have her mortal form and to instead be a tree so it's a kind of really hyper-efficient composting system in a way right wanting oh to gosh. take this woman and turn her into like back into the the materials of of, of nature it's a kind of you know green economy right but it's also so, right uh <laughs> side. yeah yeah oh, sorry um I, I didn't mean to interrupt you but i was gonna <laughs> say so like whereas in ovid like the um the laurel is um is a kind of making do with the failure of the attempt. 
in Marvell's account of things, it's like that was the point all along um, mm-hmm. to, to do for that transformation to happen. Um, the the sex or the desire for sex was merely kind of instrumental as a way to kind of get to the final thing, which is the scene in which the woman's not there at all, but instead it's the man with his bit of green sort of trophy or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what happens with this compression is that it's not clear sex was even involved as a pretext in Marvel's version. Mm -hmm. It just seems like he saw a nymph and thought, oh, she looks like she's laurel material. If I chase her, maybe she'll right. turn into a laurel and I can get my crown. Right. And I th- and it's worth, you know, because I like I had circled the word that um, because it seemed to be doing so much work as I reread mm-hmm. the poem today. Mm-hmm. Apollo hunted Daphne so only that she might laurel grow. I suppose there are different ways that you could one could potentially take that that right. Like Apollo hunted her um, and it turned out only that she um grew um only that she you know she grew into laurel um or so that right um in order that and and i take it that you are persuaded that that second meaning that i just referred to is really operative here um whether or not the others are as well yeah it's funny that you say that that is doing a lot of work i think it's one of these Mm. cases where a a spare use of words Mm-hmm. A, a a low output of of, of mm-hmm. words on the poet's part is also a kind of hard work. Mm. I think like one one of the tensions throughout this poem is is the poet or is the speaker or is any figure in this poem working hard or hardly working? What exactly <laughs> is is the labor situation in this garden? Because stuff is happening. Apollo could just be walking around the garden and picking leaves from random plants, but mm-hmm. instead he's chasing, he's hunting right. and Pan is speeding. They're, they're exerting themselves when they should just be relaxing, it seems. And that would also be yeah. a little bit less, less violent. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Um, so what's the violence for might be a, a good, a good question to ask. You know, um, it, it occurs to me then that we move, there's a kind of jarring transition from that stanza with all of that perversity in it to this, um, you know, the next stanza begins, what wondrous um, <laughs> life is this I lead? Ripe apples drop about my head. And it's this kind of um, cartoonish sort of version of like Eden on steroids or something like um, where the fruit is just so bountiful. It's totally this luxuriant kind of atmosphere. Um, Yeah. So how do you understand the move from that stanza of um, that we were just discussing to this one that feels like, um, I don't know, you know, that song, the big rock candy mountain, it was like um, where, you know, the waterfalls are made of um, whiskey and, you know, Uh everything (laughs) is there for the having um, like some kind of fantasy land. Um, How do we get from one to the other, Katie? I think it's by killing women, honestly. <laughs> so in in the Apollo Daphne Pan Syrinx stanza, you have this surgical elimination of women, mm-hmm. which allows for this sensual pleasure, the luscious clusters of the vine crushing their wine on his mouth and the curious peach reaching itself into his, his into his hands. It's, it's really sensual and, and juicy. Mm-hmm. But it's it's safe because it's completely separate and sanitized from any actual women or any actual people mm-hmm. being involved in this sexy encounter with with fruit. <laughs> um, can I ask? I mean, given um, the very provocative um, and persuasive way that you just phrased um, how we get to the kind of Edenic scene here by killing women um you know you've chosen this poem for us to read and pay attention to i um i think it's obvious to me that you're being um quite sincere and forthright in your reading of it um but i also take it that you find pleasure in the poem that in reading the poem um that you that you um love it in in one way or another now love can be a complicated feeling right um, but can you say 
I mean, is this a moment where maybe you can reflect a little bit on how both things can be true for you? Yeah, I think it's it's really it's really troubling in the Apollo Daphne story itself in Ovid how what's basically a story of attempted rape has become the foundation of a lot of Western culture, really, and and, and Western mm. lyric in particular. And so many of the love poems that I love from the early modern period and beyond are a little rapey. There's something mm-hmm. really hard to disambiguate between a, a violent misogynist attitude toward women and a romantic attitude toward women that you see in a Carpe Diem poem, mm-hmm. especially. It's a Carpe Diem poem is often a, a threat that the woman mm-hmm. give it up or else. And I, I think it's just... That that kind of that that women play a role in Western poetry that is both literal and figurative. There are many mm-hmm. poems that are about women, really about romantic love, but women are also metaphors for metaphor itself mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I don't think this poem is a misogynist poem. I don't think that Marvell is a misogynist. But I think that he's really pushing us to see how much misogyny is at the core of the tradition that he's working in, and also how much the idea of separation from women or even the annihilation, to use Marvell's yeah. in a different context, of women is necessary for, for culture and for contemplation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, th- yeah. I think I just, yeah, I, I don't, there's something That's I'm, really, I'm really compelling. working yeah. through. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I'm sorry if it, I don't, I, I apologize if I put you on the spot with that question, no, no. but it just struck me that it was, you know, um, I, I could, you know, I, I hear your reading of the poem and it feels utterly persuasive to me. And I also detect your, um, you know, enthusiasm for the poem coming through at the same time. And, um, I was sure that you'd have um, an interesting account of that, um, of of that, um, of those two things, and I was and I was right. So I'm glad I asked, <laughs> and I'm interested in your answer. But it, it's yeah. also why I think the poem is a joke. I think that he's ah. showing how the the implications, the, the premises of this antisocial mm-hmm. stance that the speaker has are ridiculously misogynist. Not that misogyny wasn't. Mm-hmm. common and accepted at the time and, and today, but it, it's, it's, it's really farcical the extent that he goes with it, I think. So the, um, the, uh, yeah. And maybe we can talk about the, um, the, the, um, I've lost count of them. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five. So the sixth and seventh stanzas, the one that begins, meanwhile, the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness the mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find. And that was a place where like the rhyme just seems so insistent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also seems like the lines are maybe describing rhyme as, even as they're enacting it. Um, and this gets us to, uh, I don't know, to, I, I think they're maybe the most famous lines in the poem, uh, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yet it creates transcending these far other worlds and other seas, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Um, you've said a couple of times now, um, that the poem is a kind of a joke. Do those lines feel jokey to you or, um, is there a kind of earnest, um, you know, desire for, um, annihilating all that's made, uh, to a green thought in a green shade? How, um, we ought to talk about those lines in, mm-hmm, in one mm-hmm. way or another. So, um, you, you lead us, Katie, what, what should we notice about them? I think there is sincerity behind any joke. And, and I do think that there is a real, a real pleasure that mm. the the mind and that the speaker and that Marvell takes in this, in this kind of retreat. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think also though, that that word annihilating, mm-hmm. which I don't really, I don't really know exactly what to do with it because I think that it's, it's both a really extreme word about, you know, apocalypse, total, total annihilation of, of everything that, that exists, but it's also, it's just like, it, it could just be describing tuning everything out, just mm. flipping a switch, turning down the volume. Zoning out. 
zoning out. Exactly. Yeah. So annihilating, um, I mean, it's obvious as soon as you look it up or think about it for a moment, if you know, uh, no, no, sorry, obvious if if you, like I did studied Latin once upon a time, but the the etymology of that word, you know, it's comes, it's like turning to nothing, literally, right? Nihil, nothing. So annihilating is like making things into nothing. Um, and um, well, I guess it's true. We all have moods and and they're not necessarily even unhappy ones. Sometimes they can be quite pleasurable ones where we want um, the experience of like obliteration or of 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 um, of just zoning out and um, and and gliding off into um, some state of non-existence. Um, a green thought to a green thought in a green shade. Um, I don't know. Such a beautiful line. Um, that that doubling of the green in that line, that sort of insistence on things coming, sort of coalescing down to a point. Were you going to say something else about yeah, that line, just, I mean, just going back to what you were saying about rhyme more generally in the poem and about the mind being an ocean yeah. where um so that, that that those lines the mind that ocean where each kind of straight its own resemblance find is a reference to a theory whereby everything that's every land creature has its little twin analog ah. in, in the ocean ah. and so the the mind is kind of like the ocean and that it can create or or everything from the world can find a, a version of itself within the mind so the mind is a kind of oh, double of of the world but and I, also suppose if, I, I suppose if you felt that way you might be more content to like shut out the world because you have your own little world mm-hmm. in you know a kind of simulation of the world ready to go in your mind and you can also create more it turns out <laughs> right 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 um i mean but yeah that that, that yeah. doubling of, of green and green is, is so interesting because so much of the of the poem seems to be about resemblance and right. You know, rhyme isn't exactly the same. Um, a pun yeah. has two meanings that are different, even though they're, even though they're contained in one word. But that uh, doubling uh. of green, green is green. It is is insisting on identity more than resemblance, total uh, identity, yeah. which seems to be in some ways the the goal of this poem to cut out mediation, the, the mediation of metaphor, the mediation of women, the mediation of business, right. commerce, negotium, and just right. get to things being what they are. Right. Without anything so, else. In so, <laughs> rhyme is a little bit like metaphor, or simile, in that it sort of takes two terms and puts and sort of um, in, asks you to notice their resemblance to each other. And in case of rhyme, it's not a semantic resemblance so much as it is a, an aural one or something, right? Um, but there's this um, kind of indulgence in rhyme that that the ultimate expression of which might not be um, resemblance at all, but instead identity as you put it Mm -hmm. sort of two things not being like each other but being the same thing being one thing Mm -hmm. um um, and i'm so struck in that i mean um in in the stanza that follows that green thought in a green shade stanza there's this idea of like the here at the fountain sliding foot or at some fruit tree's mossy root casting the body's vest aside my soul into the boughs um does glide this like Am I reading that right? It's like the the um, the poet is kind of slipping out of his body, and now the um, the trees and the green and so forth are like be- are are his body instead or something. Yeah, and it's weird that simile emerges here that the soul is like a bird when it uh-huh. seems like so much of the poem is about annihilating simile mm-hmm. and metaphor and having things be what they are in a straightforward sense, and suddenly we get the soul not being a soul, but like a bird. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that? <laughs> um, yeah. Why, why simile here? Is it, is it because like the body's been, once the body's relinquished, like mission accomplished, and now the, the ordinary stuff of poetic figuration can start happening again? I don't know. Maybe. I, I I hadn't thought about it before, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have, uh, right, good. Um, yeah, that that's that's fair enough. There, like a bird, it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings, until prepared for longer flight, 
waves in its plumes the various light. And that it is all a referent back to my soul, yeah? Yeah, but I guess what's interesting about the simile is that, I mean, he's not really going elsewhere. He's not leaving the world of the garden to make the right. simile. He's right. sitting at maybe the, the foot of this tree and think, maybe looking up and seeing a bird and being like, ah, right. my soul. He's not uh-huh. really, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. he's not exactly bridging different worlds. He's just using uh-huh. what's in front of him in a way that is more consistent with yeah. even the poem's anti-poetic moments. Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, this brings us very near the end of the poem and probably near the end of our conversation. It, it, it seems so obvious to me um, that in the final two stanzas of the poem, the garden uh, well, whatever like ordinary garden the poem began in, if it did, if it was an ordinary garden at all, um, is now like um, a- asking us to recall a very particular garden, um, the first one, you know, Eden, namely, such was that happy garden state while man there walked without a mate after a place so pure and sweet, what, o- what other help could yet be meet? But twas beyond a mortal share to wander solitary there, two paradises twere in one to live in paradise alone. Um, so we talked at the beginning of the podcast about um, uh, the friendship between Marvell and John Milton. Um, we mentioned Paradise Lost earlier in this conversation as well. Um, you and I were discussing briefly before we started recording today the there's some contention, I guess, among Marvell scholars or has been historically about the dating of this poem, but seems to me like this is a poem that's written in the wake of Paradise Lost or sort of in with Paradise Lost on the mind. So um, first of all, does that seem right to you, Katie? And and if so, like what kind of... Um, relation or response are you reading here to the um well to, i guess to paradise lost in particular or to the the story that paradise lost tells which is a familiar one even before milton wrote it right the story of adam and eve and the expulsion from that garden um how is marvell responding to that kind of mythological backdrop well, in some ways, Marvell's Eden is very different from Milton's because in Milton's Eden, Adam and Eve work really hard. And that's a really important part mm. of their innocent existence, that they keep up the garden. Going back to what we we're talking about at the beginning, that their garden is one that is upheld by human labor in a really insistent sense for Milton. There's also mm. another reference a little bit earlier to Eden uh, in stanza five, mm. The Wondrous Life, when he says, stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers, I fall on grass. Um. So falling in a garden usually is going to make people think of, right. of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Mm-hmm. But here, there, there are no consequences to the fall. Mm. The next stanza begins, meanwhile, the mind from pleasures less. So the, the fall mm-hmm. had no, no impact. It was right. a completely innocent fall, you might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like in that penultimate stanza, there's a kind of nostalgia for the for Adam's time in the garden before Eve. Is that right? Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. And there's some interesting math here when he says, uh, "'Twas beyond a mortal share to wander solitary there, two paradises twere in one to live in paradise alone." So being mm-hmm. single bachelorhood in paradise is double the fun of of married life and here he sound he just sounds like a sitcom dad or something like oh really wish i could have some peace and quiet to watch the game instead of nagging me yeah andrew marvell in his man cave right exactly Exactly. okay (laughs) right um okay right two paradises twirling one to live in paradise alone and and i'm hearing in in somewhere in those lines the wandering solitary there um a kind of verbal echoing of the very final and just uh, like incredibly beautifully rendered final lines of paradise lost we shouldn't assume katie that everybody has read paradise lost but um i guess very briefly right it tells the story of the the fall of man and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, um, and does so at great length. It's an epic poem, but at the at the very end of the poem, um, Adam and Eve are um, 
um, hand in with um, hand in hand with wandering steps and slow, right? Leaving um, Eden. Would you? Um, do you have those lines handy or memorized or something? Would you read those last lines of Paradise Lost for us? Sure. The world was all before them. Where to choose their place of rest and Providence their guide? They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I'm hearing like the wandering, the two and one, that kind mm-hmm. of doubling, right? But everything's sort of differently configured here somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's such a lovely and interesting connection because Milton is playing with singleness and doubleness between Adam and Eve as well, because they're hand in hand, but they're also right. solitary. Right. And here there's two paradises when someone is solitary. Right. So it's really, um, it's almost yeah. the opposite, right? That that yeah. for, yeah, I'm getting a little bit dizzy trying to think yeah. about how these different configurations work. But Well, and it also occurs to me that, you know, so Milton's Adam and Eve are hand in hand, but of course, famously, Milton's poem doesn't rhyme. And Marvell, like, d- doesn't want anyone to hold his hand. <laughs> Right. Um, But because he's holding his own or something, the poem rhymes and it's doing its own kind of companionate thing in that sense. Yeah, that's really funny you mentioned that because Marvell's prefatory poem to Milton's Paradise Lost uh, does rhyme and he praises Milton's lack of rhyme in rhyme. (laughs) Right. So it's a little bit. (laughs) It's like a subtweet or something. I don't Uh, know. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's very funny. Um, and, um, and so, um, maybe the, just as a final question, cause we're totally out of time here. Um, a, a final question I could ask you is about the way time is working at the end of this poem. Um, and, and maybe relative to the way that it, uh, I don't know if this feels illuminating for you run with it, but if not, just please talk to us about what's happening with time at the end of this poem. But what I was going to say is um, it always struck me that at the end of Paradise Lost, that line that you read, the world was all before them. I mean, suggests first of all, a kind of um, spatial description. So um, Adam and Eve are leaving Eden, this sort of contained space. And now they have the whole world before them, like in front of them before in that sense. Um, but I think, and I'm not a Miltonist, so I don't know if this is like a reasonable reading or one that everybody says, or if it's, I'm just misreading badly somehow that I always hear in that some echo of like the world was all before them in the sense of, um, temporal before, like the world has already happened in some sense, like the drama has already happened and their fate has been sealed, um, either because of what Satan did or what they did in the garden or whatever, like, um, yeah, they've got to go live their lives, but now they're going to die, whereas they weren't going to before. That somehow they've come too late. Um, so, is some is some what what's happening with time at the end of Marvell's version of the Garden poem, and does it have anything to do with Paradise Lost or or whatever? Yeah, that's interesting reading because in Paradise Lost, Adam has just had a, a crash course on biblical history and all human history up to the apocalypse from an angel who's come down and told him right. what's going to happen. So in a way, you're right, everything has already happened in Milton's mm-hmm. poem. Um, but yeah, I think in, in Marvell, something very different is going on with time. There's this image of a, of a sundial that's made of flowers in the final stanza. Uh, right. How well the skillful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial knew. Which is really a cute idea, just having a little sundial mm. made of flowers. Yeah. And it also, because it, it spatializes time in a way that, again, going back to two is coy mistress, it almost seems like a joke about having world enough in time because yeah. it's right here. <laughs> we have uh-huh. we have a world made of time. It's a floral sundial right here in front of us in the garden. And the in- the industrious bee computes his time as well as we. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I wonder if there's a a pun on on time that it's like T H Y M E that it's uh-huh. pollinating time flowers and that's uh-huh. just as just as good as as us with our clock time. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But yeah, even having an industrious bee in there is funny. It's like, well, yeah. I thought that this was a place we all got away from labor. Why at the very right. end of this poem do we have right. a little worker bee? And right. you know, what does it mean that it computes its time as well 
as we is it you think it might be like better but it's just yeah it's, it's or the just, same. just as well or something yeah, right? it, but, it, yeah. it seems related to what you were saying about resemblance that this uh-huh. that, that wanting to find an analog in the bee that the this this the soul in, instead of just being content with itself it does find itself always having to make comparisons and find resemblance instead get, of being yeah. content in the green thought and green shade I guess worth saying that the final uh, rhyme in the poem is between the words hours and flowers, right? So mm-hmm. that time is measured in this kind of, um, I don't know, natural or spatial f- floration or something. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? Um, yeah, that's lovely so, how yeah. flowers reckons hours by rhyming with it. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I love it. Um, well, that's a beautiful, um, beautiful final observation. Great place, I think, for us to end. So, um, Katie Kadu, I just want to uh, really thank you for this um, hour of conversation, hour plus, I guess. I, um, I owe you a flower, I think. Um, and, um, and I want to thank everybody for um, listening to the podcast. And I hope you will um, um, Uh, stay tuned for more episodes. We have some exciting ones coming up in the future, Um, but be well, everyone. And thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. Thank you.